Hello, and welcome back to the sixth season of Scene to Song, a musical theater podcast for people who love to discuss, critique, and celebrate musicals as a literary art form. I'm your host, Shoshana Greenberg, and each episode I'll bring on a guest to talk about a musical, musical theater writer, or a topic or trend in musical theater. I have an exciting fall season lined up, and I want to take this opportunity to highlight the Scene to Song Patreon, patreon.com slash scene to song, where I'll be posting bonus material from many of the episodes. There are various levels of contribution, but for as little as $3 a month, you'll have access to all that bonus material. Thank you to those who have already contributed. My guest today is Rob Weinert-Kent. Rob is Editor-in-Chief of American Theatre Magazine and was the founding Editor-in-Chief of Backstage West. He writes about theatre for the New York Times, Time Out New York, and the Los Angeles Times, and studied film at USC. He is also a composer member of the BMI Lehman Engel Musical Theatre Workshop. We're going to talk today about the work of the German-born American composer Kurt Weill. Hey, Rob. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. So excited to have you. Shoshana, so excited to be here. Well, great. Let's get right into our get to know our guest questions. What was your first experience with a musical? I think other than cast albums, it was a production of Oliver when I was in the second grade. I probably had seen another musical on the stage, but that one made a big impression on me. It was my birthday present. I took my best friend, uh, to go. I think I probably had the cast album, so that's why I wanted to go. It was the Phoenix Little Theater. And I I just remember, you know, loving it. It's a play, you know, little kids running around, urchins running around with, with Cockney accents, being brassy and cute and 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 and, and mischievous. Uh, it couldn't be a better show for a second grader. And um, I, uh, the, the revival recently really made me fall in love again with it. Uh, so that was it. In fact, you know, my firstborn son, it's not the only reason his name is Oliver, but that's a big part of it. So, oh, nice. Yeah, Oliver was a big one for me growing up too. And yeah, the the production, the recent production in New York was really great to God, revisit yeah. it. What is the last great musical that you saw? Well, speaking of encores, uh, I finally saw Light in the Piazza, which I had heard about for years. I'd heard bits of it. I someone gave me a DVD years ago of the the famous Lincoln Center production. Mm -hmm. And I just never got around to it. And I think um, it is the kind of piece that is, uh, you have to sort of sit with the whole way through because I can't think of an ending of a musical that's just stuck the landing more heavily for me. It just, Mm -hmm. it's an odd musical, but I could definitely see what the, what the fuss is about. It's, it's odd. It's sort of up on its own head. It's makes some strange choices. It's quasi operatic. But boy, the second, the <laughs> just, it doesn't go where you think it is. I mean, I will go. It is part of it. I feel like it, it's so um, surprising in that it, it seems to be going into sort of a Tennessee Williams tragedy area, but then it ends up in this just other wrenching area where the mother just to, just to sort of center her at the end when those last chords, the first, the first chords of the last song start to sort of Sondheim, like, chin, 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 I'm, I, I was just, mm. I, I, I was just gone. I just loved it. I loved it. And this production was beautiful with uh, with uh, Ruthie Ann Miles in the lead. So anyway, I don't know if you saw it. It was 
Um, I didn't see this production because I was like away for half the yeah. week and I just was like, I don't think I can do it. But I, mm. but part of the reason I decided to skip it was because I did see the original okay. twice plus the anniversary concert. I guess, oh, wow. Like, okay. 10, year, 10 years after. So I felt like I at least like, even though I was skipping this, I have at least like seen the show multiple times. So what's a musical that people would be surprised to find out you love and why would they be surprised? I had trouble with this one just because I don't, I like, A, like to think of myself as someone who has such a wide taste that no one, you know, I have no guilty pleasures. It's all high, low, pop, whatever. But I do think I've staked out a position as a sort of someone who I don't love a certain kind of theatrical rock. Mm -hmm. Partly because I really love rock and roll. I grew up with rock and pop and, and and hip hop and stuff, uh, the quote unquote real thing. It's spurious, but you know, I grew up listening to that. And then when and I love theater, musical theater. And when they when certain people try to put them together, it to me mm. it sets off alarm bells. So I've <laughs> I've I've come I've come to appreciate Rent, but it was never my it was this is not my show. Mm-hmm. It was just too generationally close to me. It was like, <laughs> um, and I just never loved it. But I love Tick Tick Boom. Mm. I just I I. You know, I I think that the movie, the movie mm-hmm. of it, uh, I think Stephen Levinson and Lin Manuel did just such a beautiful tribute to Jonathan. It captured what I love best about that music is this sort of irrepressible, just attempt to put those the music he loves and the theater he loves into one thing. And I I don't feel he ever quite, you know, I don't speak ill of that. I don't think he ever quite like closed the deal, you know, in anything I've seen by him. But that that movie just did it. I mean, I also mentioned Jesus Christ Superstar because. I'm also sort of on the Weber versus Sondheim. I'm a, I'm a Sondheim <laughs> guy, but Superstar, I was in it in high school. And I also, um, I don't think it's a great show, but it can really work as a concert. That concert version a couple of years ago on TV mm. really killed. And it's also, you know, Andrew Lee Weber, it was a, it was a prog rock album. Yeah. It was like a really, that that's the only score of his I know that really sounds like rock, like progressive rock. And I have, have a big weakness for that kind of, like j- rock jam music. And so, <laughs> so I, I don't think it would surprise people too much to know that I like those, but if they know my taste pretty well, they'd be like, really, you like, you like a Weber musical? That would be the one. What's your favorite musical that no one else has heard of? Well, this teases what we'll be talking about. Um, <laughs> and I have to qualify. It's my favorite musical score. I've never seen it staged. And from what I've read about it, I can see it. It sounds like the book might be a, an issue, but I, I hope, hope Lear de Bennett Bessonet, uh, picks this up or Janine to sorry, someone over at, at Encores picks this up because it's Johnny Johnson. And we'll talk about it a little bit later. It's the first musical uh, that Kurt Weill wrote when he came to the U.S. He did it with the group theater. Hmm. And it's just the sound of somebody who has heard American music before, but is also just, just has just landed. And so it's this, it's about World War One. It's an anti-war musical um, about, you know, World War One, And it has a lot of, uh, it's, scenes set in Germany and France and the U S and it just sounds like it's a, a score written by somebody who's in love with all that music. Doesn't quite understand it, but is making do his own version of it. It's so, I just got a real weakness for w- when Europeans like uh, Stravinsky or uh, uh, Mio and other, other French composers try to do jazz. I just, I mean, I guess it might send off a- appropriation alarm bells for some people, but I just love that sort of, we'll have a saxophone and a jaunty foxtrot anyway. And so, <laughs> Kurt Vile had already been doing that in Europe, but he gets to the the States and he's like doing the, trying to do a version of the real thing. It's just, 
it's a version of Americana that I just, I can't get enough of. So I love mm-hmm. that score. I, I would love to see an encore's version because again, the book might be a, a hash. I'm not sure. What is a moment in a musical that you think gets to a complex emotional state you didn't think was possible to get to? I'm going to nominate a moment in the woods mm-hmm. uh, from uh, Into the Woods. Um, and and it's, a, it's a certain reason is that as many times as I have seen that show and listened to that score, I'm always caught up short by that song and by that moment. Um, where it's placed in the show and who sings it. Now that I've seen it so many times, I am tracking The Baker's Wife maybe more than I was the first couple of times. So I'm definitely anticipating it. But there's something about the way Sondheim's able to capture a thought process in process, like mm-hmm. the thinking out loud of it, that it's, you know what it is? It's not that the character is feeling the emotion. It's that she's having a thought and it's making me feel something about regret and life choices and just thinking about, I mean, it just, I it's, find it so moving. Yeah. Um, I think the the rap on Sondheim, of course, is that he's, you know, cerebral and there's his songs aren't moving and blah, blah, I, you know, I don't believe it. I think what he's able to do is capture complex emotions mm-hmm. and feelings of like, of the, you know, the road you didn't take is like maybe a signature song for me mm-hmm. where it's like thinking about the road not taken and thinking about, huh, is it really better? And I just feel like Moment in the Woods captures that. And, and it's such a f- funny, sexy, uh, just, you know, again, all that stuff in the song and then she's, and, and then she dies. It just, yeah, yeah. I, there's nothing <laughs> like that. And that, that Lapine deserves credit for that too. But I just, yeah, that, that's my, that I would nominate that. There's a lot of, a lot of song time that would be like that. And there's a couple of Lacusa ones I thought of where, mm. Like you said, like like Gattel, he like gets you to places you can't believe that he got to. Sometimes that's the only good thing about some of those shows. I don't want to single any out, but sometimes Michael John, just to give these, he like I'll be, I'll be kind of like okay, wait, wait, and then this moment will pop out like okay, I'm glad I was here because that was something yeah. to see. I think Sondheim delivers that more regularly to me yeah. than some of those others. But yeah, it's it's a it's all alchemy of music and, and lyrics that. Uh, that makes you feel things. Well, let's move into our topic, which I'm very excited to talk about, the musicals of Kurt Weill. Um, so, yeah, I just wanted to, I guess, start with our own experiences with Kurt Weill. As we've established, I, I, I do love theater and I do love music. And I don't always love musical theater as it's, as it, as it's commonly practiced. And I, I, I do love it. I'm just saying I seem to be very picky about it. I think that comes from a sense. Uh, it's it's going to sound like snobbery because it's it's not because I, I you know as I said I like a lot of rock and pop music as well. I feel like Kurt Weill comes at the theater as a composer, fully resourced with all of his tools as a composer, and he in his case studying class, he was classically trained, and then at some point he saw that. You know. He admired Mozart, Puccini a lot. And he said they were doing popular art, you know, and where classical music is going in the 20th century. And for a lot of reasons that are both like sort of academic, but also cultural and economic where with where Europe was going. Uh, classical music was becoming its own little like bubble and chamber. And I don't want to necessarily debate that. I, I love a lot of 20th century classical music, but he just saw the theater and poetry as a way to reach people and have a direct impact. He, he talked about uh, music for use. Mm-hmm. I think there's a gebracht music. I think there's, is, is the German word for it. 
um, which is a little bit sounds a little Marxist, but it was it was just the idea that music should be for something. It should be for a purpose, and uh, you know it, it's not as mutually exclusive with the idea that music can just be beautiful in its own right and art for its own sake. But he felt that it has to have a, some sort of if social communal impact or purpose. And I feel like, so he was drawn naturally to uh, in the twenties to artists who were all about that. Georg Kaiser and, and Bertolt Brecht were two of the, two of the major ones. Um, and uh, I, so, you know, in the theater, actually in all music, I think the music is telling the story, right? The music is, is, is the, in some ways the subtext it's saying it's saying what people really feel. This is true of movie scores. It tells you how you're supposed to <laughs> supposed mm-hmm. to feel, or or sort of works at cross purposes sometimes with what you're supposed to feel. But it it's and in the theater, especially when they put lyrics over it, I still think the music is doing it, music is making you feel stuff. I, I know if we've talked to a lot of playwrights who suddenly realize they didn't like musicals, and all of a sudden they realize, wow, music can do all this stuff that I can't do. <laughs> with my words, it can make people, it's like a shortcut. It's almost like cheating. It's like a drug. Like you inject this and people feel stuff. And that's because music has that quality. It's a physical. And I would just say, if I had to boil it down, that Kurt Vile makes you feel ambivalent things or makes you feel multiple things at the same time, Hmm. which, you know, he's not the only composer who does this, but I feel like because of the musical palette he works with, rooted partly in classical training, but then also just all the pop music who's in, 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 jazz he was here on the radio popular songs he had a strong influence from uh jewish uh temple music of the late 19th century his, his father was a cantor so you can hear a lot of his choral music it's, it's it to the untrained ear it sounds like oh that's just german choral music well it's, it's actually german jewish choral music is what it is uh which was influenced by german anyway so there's he was had all these things in his ear and it all came out into this uh music which i think the music itself, even apart from the words, he was very good at setting lyrics and in part because I think his music, you know, you can get really technical about what his sort of chord choices, but there's a sort of major minor thing going on where even his major keys sound like sound a little sad and his, even his minor keys have a, have a bounce to them. So, um, you know, it's a little bit, you know, it's, 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 it's partly a taste thing. I know that um, I've written about how Sondheim himself, really didn't like Kurt Weill. He also didn't like Verdi, Verdi for some reason. And he said, it's just a taste thing. It's just his harmonic language, sort of like, it's just a, it's sort of like a, a you know, I don't like that flavor. So I happen to lo- love that flavor um, of the flavors of the sounds he, he composed in. Um, and so I feel like, you know, we, we can talk about this. His, 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 his flavor of musical didn't develop in this, in the same seedbed that American musical theater did. And so th- the shows he wrote for, even the big hit ones we were talking to earlier, like they're not staged that often. Yeah. They're kind of hard to stage. The books are weird. They're, they're, they were written for a specific time and place, and they don't have the conventions of musical theater that we have here. But I think at its best, especially some of the later ones he did in, before he died, tragically, he died, he died at age 50 in 1950. Um, just had a bad heart. Um, um, some of those shows really are in that vein of, of musicals that sort of push the envelope of the musical a little bit, which I think is in the tradition that everyone from Bernstein to Sondheim to Dave Malloy to, you know, uh, Elizabeth Suedos, you know, just folks who, you know, they're doing musicals, they're in a popular form, they love popular 
forms, but they're just kind of pushing that form. They're trying to do things that you're not quote supposed to do because, um, you know, he did work with Moss Hart and uh, Alan J. Lerner and uh, <clears throat> a lot of like quote pros, musical theater pros. And he actually, le- I think he learned a lot from them and tried to, he really earnestly tried to, to make music in that way. He was Albert, Gersh- Albert Gershwin. But, um, you know, he was always kind of doing something a little, a little different. Um, and, uh, you know, sometimes a little pretentious, but I mean, I, I, I could, I could take it, I you know, I could take that stuff. Um, yeah. And I just, it's, it's actually sort of tragic. Uh, he died at age 50. He, he had, you know, 20 more years of music he could have written for the, but there's so much there that he did write. That's so great. So I, I came to him the way a lot of, a lot of rock people came was there's an album came of, uh, collection of, of rock stars singing his stuff in the uh, in the nineties yeah. lost in the stars that it's kind of amazing how many people have have covered his his songs and um like extremely popularized whereas his actual shows yep are not that popular and i feel like i've seen a couple and i right. i've heard a lot of the songs just through mm-hmm in the culture. And I still feel like I don't really know Kurt Vile as a, a composer, as a musical theater writer, as, as anything, yeah. you know? And yeah, I'm like, why, yeah. why is that? Like, why, why have I not like latched on to Kurt Vile in the same way I've latched on to, um, I don't know, Sondheim's in like a different category, but like, yeah, even yeah. just like, uh, I don't know, Bach and Harnick or like, you know, like yeah, people yeah. who are not like, Sondheim and Rodgers and Hammerstein, but ours like they have written a ton of shows for Broadway and have like a a name, you know. Yeah, I mean, it's like he his best scores were for shows that have weird forms that aren't that accessible, mm-hmm. or they're in German or whatever, right. or or the English versions are okay. Again, we can talk about Three Penny all day. I I, I did a, a great uh, podcast with Patrick Flynn about that. Yeah, um, yeah, about Three Penny. Also and a guest on this podcast. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and I, 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 that's not a bad entry level drug. Although, as I explained to him, that it was the German version that really sold me on that mm. for whatever perverse reason. It just it sounded better. Just I could hear the tempos. Yeah, in it. just the, the well, music moved. Well, it's interesting because yeah. I feel like we are a, a lot of musical theater folks are interested in like exper- musical theater ex- experimental forms and and all that, right. which this would fall into. But Absolutely. I feel like the experimental forms are like maybe a little earlier from when we are kind of used to thinking about or experiencing the experimental forms of like the seventies and, and all that. Sure. Whereas these are like sure. experimental forms, experimenting with the musical theater form uh, in like the, in this earlier way that we're, I guess maybe we're not like, that is not totally accessible to us. Right. Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's like, it was, it was in parallel too. It wasn't in conversation at all with what was happening in the, in American musical theater. I mean, they were hearing some records, Mm-hmm. But they weren't here. They weren't seeing anything goes or you know boys from Syracuse. In the mm-hmm. they were writing them at the same time as the shows in the twenties and thirties, and of course their political situation was much more. It was much different. It was much more dire uh, than here. So their shows reflected that as well. And when they so I was going to say his 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 best scores are kind of for these weird unstageable or just sort of the kind of thing you might see in the opera house, and his more conventional shows he wrote some really great scores for, but those aren't the Thus, the the essential Kurt Vile scores, the, the ones he wrote in the '40s in broad, on Broadway, basically. Mm-hmm. And I I really hate to be one of these people who says, "Oh, I much prefer his 
German music before he sold out on Broadway. <laughs> I, I don't really buy that. I think he was really earnestly as much, he was as much an artist uh, in the U.S. as he was in Germany. He just, he didn't know the form and, and you know, the, I don't think he knew the language as well. I think some of the settings aren't just, they just, they're good, but they're, they're a high quality of craft, but they just aren't the, and then of course, even though those are, they're done in more access, slightly more accessible forms. I mean, Love Life, we can talk about, that was one that Sondheim and Prince saw, like Sondheim was mm-hmm. around, like he was very young, but they all saw it and were sort of influenced. Harold Prince, he said he was very influenced by that show. Very strange conceptual musical. Yeah. Um, I don't, I just don't love much of what I've heard of it. <laughs> and um, it's the one where I would, I think there is a concert, collegiate courses doing it, I think. So um, I'll try and check it out because, but, but those are sort of curiosities. Again, if you, if you want to just put on a great Kerval record, I think the other scores are better. Yeah. But, uh, so, you know, he's, he's not the most accessible artist sometimes for people. And I, I would, I would, I would venture that rock artists like him because of the lyrics mostly because mm. they're about sex and, and, you know, just disreputable stuff, you know, sex and they're bleak and cynical and funny <laughs> and, you know, the Sir Johnny stuff, you know? Yeah. So. Yeah. And I guess they, there's like a lot of room, the ones I've heard anyway, there's like a lot of room to, you know, uh, jazz, make it into like a jazz song or like turn, sure, turn it yeah, you could do that different format, you know, formats. You can, yeah, you definitely can. Um, if they're, they're, I mean, a lot of that stuff, some of that early stuff is, is very cabaret type mm-hmm. material, yeah, like literally the show, but also it was like it could be formed in performed in a club, right? And right. singers could really go with it, yeah, it's true. So, yeah, so maybe that's why rock and jazz people love it so much, you know? <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, he. It's also interesting to think of, you know, he is not American, you know, he's Mm -hmm. working in American musical theater, but not American. And he, his most well-known musical, I guess, Three Penny Opera is not American, (laughs) which is kind of also an anomaly in musical theater because, I mean, I mean, now more often we're getting, you know, people from other countries coming over and writing or like, or the, the show start, you know, in London or, or sure, sure. France or, you know, and then come over here. But um, I, I feel like that for at least the ones that are well known, that was less, probably less so than. Well, no, I mean, what's interesting, I mean, he's definitely of the generation of folks who were, you know, fleeing Nazi Germany. Right. And there were yeah. a lot of. Uh, authors and a lot of Hollywood people, a lot of directors, mm-hmm. Billy Wilder, you know, uh, just whole generation. And, but there were no, and there were some composers who came over, obviously, uh, right. at that time. Uh, Scherenberg was one of them, a bunch of folks. But he's the only one who sort of came to Broadway to do musicals. It was just actually sort of a strange thing. There weren't like a bunch of European trained composers who came mm-hmm. to Broadway and says, I'm, I'm going to compete in the play in the plane, you know, compete with the Gershwins and Porters and, you know, and work with Moss Hart like that. That was a weird thing. And I think actually, actually I think a lot of his compatriots, expatriate compatriots or whatever, mm-hmm. um, kind of looked yeah. down on it. They, they mm-hmm. kind of looked at like, you know, they were off in LA, you know, trying to write for the movies, which of course they also looked down on, but, <laughs> and he did, he tried to do a little bit of movie work, but it didn't work out so well. Um, Again, he does stand out uniquely as a as a this amazing German composer. Then had a, like a really pretty distinguished, but all too brief uh, Broadway career as well. Yeah, because I, I I think of like the yeah the people writing at that time. I, obviously, they're they're not 
they, they are they have family who came over from other countries, but that most of them, you know, began life as uh, as Americans. I guess probably Frederick Lowe is an exception, but right. Um, but yeah, so we have like, you know, this Kurt Vile German, yeah, bringing yeah. bringing German musical theater <laughs> to the U.S. <laughs> yeah, I know it's uh. Yeah, and exactly. There were a lot of Jewish folks he was working with, but it was a, just a different tradition. And, mm-hmm. you know, they did know some of the same words. I think he probably knew some Yiddish, but like it was different, different mm-hmm. generations for sure. His his parents did move to Israel and he visited them a couple of times. Um, but uh, and so, you know, the, the, the famous story is he, 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 when he came to the U.S., apparently he, he insisted on being pronounced, uh, his name being pronounced Kurt Wheel, I think, mm. or Weil. He didn't want to have a German pronunciation. He said he wouldn't speak German anymore except to his dogs. That was his, yeah. that was his, I mean, for obvious reasons, he was yeah. dumb, dumb with Germany. But uh, although he did have to then write, you know, songs in fake German for Johnny Johnson. and. But yeah, I mean, he had this whole body of work, I guess, first uh, from when he lived in, in Germany, mm-hmm, uh, including mm-hmm. three penny opera. Let's leave aside. He, he, he did do his, some concert music and great symphonies and string quartets. And that, I think he trained with Busoni and he was like in that tradition, but he then mm-hmm. fell in with the theater people. And, um, you know, the sort of masterpiece that he wrote while he was over there. I mean, you've heard, you've all heard of three penny opera and happy and maybe happy end, but it was, it was the, the rise and fall of the city of Mahagoni mm-hmm. was kind of like, in some respect, it was sort of like a rite of spring level event in musical history. It was the opening had brown shirts. There was almost a riot. Um, and, and, and that's a, it's a classic Brecht. If you know Brecht at all, mm-hmm. uh, it's, it's actually, that's a pretty great opera, which is, there's a, there's a John Doyle production of it at LA opera with Audrey McDonald, Patti LuPone, oh, yeah. which I think you can watch on DVD. It's quite good. It's not music. It, it actually musically is great. Some people might quibble with the with the voices, uh, but his music can be sung operatically or in a more theatrical style. It works both ways. Mm-hmm. Um, that's an amazing, uh, very very Brecht sort of like fake a, a, a fake land of Mahagoni, which is like some some blend of like an old west gold rush mining town. Like he, you know, he, most of his ideas of America were from silent films mm-hmm. and uh, gangster movies. So it's kind of like a parable of greed. And these, these three people go out to the, these three men go out to the, to, to make money with a gold rush. And they, they basically, I basically, you know, it's basically like they, they build Las Vegas. They build it. They build a, a, a town with a, with a whorehouse and, uh, and gambling and then people can't pay their debts are killed. It's, it's very dystopian. <laughs> it's got, it's most famous. It has the song Alabama song, which the doors later covered. Hmm. Um, and what's interesting about that is it, it was written in that sort of doggerel English. So um, it's very simple English, but the, in the opera, all of a sudden these, these, these women, these sex workers are singing a song about uh, Alabama for no reason, particular hmm. reason. It was sort of a pastiche. Yeah. 
I won't go into the details. It was basically built out of a opera was built out of a sort of radical performance piece at, at this music festival that put Brecht and Vile on the map, where they had Ladelenius screaming into a megaphone and guys in a boxing ring. It was very, very 20th century avant-garde. And it's 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 a it's a full-on opera. So if you're ready for that, I, I think it really rewards attention. But the of course the work he's most famous for, and I think it is a great score is the three penny opera, which he did with Brecht right. and that he did. He started working on Mahogany before that, but then he and Brecht basically, I, you know, I, I say dashed off. It's not quite fair, but they did write rather quickly uh, this sort of gangster uh, piece that was based on the beggars opera, this John Gay uh, thing from the England, from England in the, the uh, 1700s, I believe 1800s. I forget when it was, was done originally. Yeah, I think seven, um, I want to say 1700s. 1700s yeah. yeah. And it was, and it, it itself was a parody of Italian opera. So mm-hmm. it's a strange, very strange um, uh, cross-cultural thing. And all, all the names in it, McHeath and, Peachum are all these, these British names and it's the Queen's coronation. So it's a strange work. And it's, you know, the, the one we know in the, in the U S the Mark Blitzing version is quite, quite a good translation and it makes the songs work really well. And as I was telling you earlier, Shoshana, I've never seen a fully successful production of it. It's mm. just, it's hard to get the tone, right? The story is, you know, a mix of like on the nose, obviousness and like weird, choices that you're like hmm i don't know what that's supposed to <laughs> how that's supposed to land right. um i mean the main thing is that it's he's mac Heath, the lead character is a amoral gangster and he's kind of and and everything works out for him in the end like uh and so it's just it's basically saying you know the bad guy wins in in our capitalist system uh mm-hmm. you know he's he's got at least three women uh, who are vying for him. And uh, so, you know, there's, there's a level of melodrama or sort of trashy. Is that soap um, to it. Mac the Knife? That's his song? That's, that's, the, that's the famous song. That's the, the Blitzstein uh, uh, translation of that. Someone's lying by the telly with his children and his And yeah, I mean that's a a good distillation of a of of the 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 famous chord that Kurt Vile was known for and that Sondheim apparently hated about it. You know the opening. You know the opening chord in um, Vilcomen on Cabaret. Well, that that's what's called a sixth chord. I won't go into too much detail, but it, you add a sixth note on top of a regular major triad. And it's also the note of oh, da, 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 the shark. Oh, the shark bites. So that chord both sounds sort of yearning and expansive, but also it has a sort of minor built into it. So it's like it's um, so it's a major minor sad happy chord, and he does that all the time. And it's all over. He just he rides the sixth <laughs> Mac, in, in in the Mac Mac the Knife song. And so he's just it is a bit of cliche, a bit of a cliche. If you want to have a Kurt Vile sound, you just play that sixth over and over. He didn't always do it, and um, he was had other tricks up his sleeve. But it is a very signature sound. Um, and then you know, a year later, he and Brecht wrote uh, uh, 
a happy end, which is basically like three penny two. They said, give us another one. The show's not very good. Michael Feingold actually did a great, a great sort of like new book for it. It's eerily close to guys and dolls in the plot. There's a, yeah. there's like a, like a, a Salvation Army uh, troop that merges with some gangsters. Apparently, it's totally a coincidence. I think no one's been able to find out how how these two pieces uh, have so much in common. Um, and uh, it's the score though is great. The score is, I mean, I would even say it's almost it's as good as if not in some places just more consistently great than Three Penny. But uh, it is just kind of song after song. It's not like. Three, it has a few big set pieces that are great scenes, but Three Penny is kind of like a, it really serves a story and moves it along. Whereas this is, Happy End is just a series of great, that's the one that has served by Johnny mm-hmm. and a bunch of other just, I mean, it's the kind of thing where, you know, it really does function as, you like Three Penny Opera? Here's another like 10 songs, just very similar. <laughs> here's here's your sequel. Um, yeah. So, you know, you know, I'm not as familiar with a lot of his other stuff in Germany. He did a couple other things, some operas and stuff with other folks besides Brecht. But near the end, you know, 1933 was a really, I don't need to say, it was a really bad year in Germany. I think he was making plans to leave. Um, he didn't leave till 35, which is very late. Uh, but he just got out um, in time with, with his life. But one of the last pieces he wrote there was just Der Silbersee or The Silver Lake with Georg Kaiser. It's a rather tortured metaphorical piece about a, a guy who shoots a, a cop who shoots somebody and then feels guilty about it years later when he's confronted by the guy. It's it's very moralistic play. The music is amazing. I don't even, it's, that's a score that I've just grown to love. And I, I feel like it, I'm just totally reading biography into this. It feels like a farewell to Germany. Mm-hmm. It's it's It has a lot of German forms in it and a lot of, it it hits this sort of classical pop register in a way that doesn't have that Brechtian bite. It doesn't sound ironic at all. It just sounds like, it almost sounds like if he'd stayed there, he could have written musicals that sounded like this, that are just lush, gorgeous. It sounded like, you know, like he, he literally had like tapped into uh, the sort of Mozart in him. You know, he could have like continued to write beautiful pieces. Like it's just gorgeous. Ich hab einen Koffer voll Habe, den schleppe ich überall hin. Ach, wenn ich mich doch nur seiner entledigen könnte, weil ich mir die Finger habe und auch nicht die kräftigste bin. Und nirgends will man mich behalten, weil ich nirgends gern gesehen bin. Am liebsten möchte ich einfach weglaufen, Mein bisschen Dasein verwalten nach meinem eigenen Sinn. Das ist kein Leben, das ist nur Verdruss, den man was sollen werden ertragen muss. There was a version of it called The Silver Lake with Joel Grey that was done years later at the New York City Opera. I don't love the translation, but it's, it has some great songs in it. Um, yeah. That one's sort of, but the, but the, the German one is just, oh, there's so many good stuff, things like that. And then I'll just touch briefly on like he, then he went to France um, en route to the U.S. before France fell. Um, and in the 30s, he wrote some amazing pieces. There's an opera that's lost called Marie Gallant, which uh, 
I don't know nothing about the show, but it's got some great songs. He wrote some great songs in French that actually sound like he really had this uncanny ability to adapt like a chameleon to whatever. His French song sounds like he's French. He sounds like he's a French chanson writer. Hmm. Um, they're just gorgeous. But then The Seven Deadly Sins he wrote with Brecht. He, he and Brecht, they really clashed personality-wise. They really complement each other, but they got together and wrote this thing called The Seven Deadly Sins, which is kind of a dance theater piece. It's like a oratorio where there's a singer and a dancer embodying this, this woman and all the seven deadly, embodying all the seven deadly sins as she works her way across America, making money for her family uh, in reputable and disreputable ways. But the sins are all re- like turned on their head by Brecht. It's this period of, of, of Vile's work when he's sort of loosed from Germany and heading to the U.S. is kind of my favorite. It's a sweet spot for me. I love the German stuff. I love the Maryland American stuff. But these scores in the middle, again, I don't want to over, you know, armchair cycle, but I feel like he's in sort of transit and it feels like I can hear it in the music. So Seven Deadly Sins is just, again, it's in this register where it's not quite classical, not quite, you know, pop, not quite theater. It's just. Is he in Paris still here? He was in Paris at the time. Yeah, that was in Paris. And Seven Deadly Sins was was composed in because it was Brecht and Brecht happened to be there. That's how they made this deal to do this, hmm. to do this dance theater piece. Um, so it was done in German. It was written in German. That one's just a, a delight. Those Zilberzee and Seven Deadly Sins are in a special, like little special niche for me. And then the first show he did, you know, he was brought to the U S actually to do this giant pageant called the eternal road, which <laughs> is not that listenable. It's basically a religious pageants about, the uh the uh, jewish jewish history like Mm. from adam to you know to israel basically and it's very earnest and has some has some beautiful stuff in it but it's very earnest and it was basically he was writing like it was like he was writing the music for ben-hur or something it's just this epic it it was max reinhardt directing so it's just like the spectacle you could read the stories of it was a famous kind of like boondoggle slash people couldn't believe what they were looking at and they were glad they saw it because they could tell so they could tell people it's not the kind of piece that would ever be mounted again it was just this giant there were like live animals on stage it was just it was trying to do the whole the whole uh you know uh hebrew bible i mean i'm sorry i don't know what the what the term would be like you know so the story of story of the jews um so he's brought there to do that so that was and that took tortured had a tortured gestation that was 1937 but in the meantime, he wrote Johnny Johnson with mm-hmm. the group theater. And the group theater, if you know, that those folks didn't know how to do musicals. So apparently this production was also a bit of a disaster. It played on Broadway for like a week or something. Mm-hmm. Layman Engel was the conductor, and apparently he was tearing his hair out. <laughs> because Kurt Feil didn't know what he was – nobody quite knew what they were doing. Yeah. Like the group theater didn't know how to do musical. I mean, I think like I think Sanford Meisner was in it. Like Strasberg was in it. Uh, I forget who directed it. might have been Kazan directed it, but no one knew what they were doing. Kulin Kurvahu just got to the States and just, just figuring out how to how to notate, you know, ragtime music. What, what, it was a <laughs> it was his first Broadway show too. It's like he's on Broadway. The the Eternal Road happened somewhere like a city center or some like big jack, you know, urban palace. And so Johnny Johnson, it was that recording is lost to us, and I think it was probably a debacle. There's a great 1950s recording recorded after Kurt Vile died with Burgess Meredith in the lead. And that just, it's, it, it, again, it captures this time when he did, he was sort of between 
two posts between between two parts of his life yeah. and the the sort of musical joy of of that arrival is so palpable in that i just love that show um or the score johnny johnson yeah. so how did he how did he just like arrive in new york and and <laughs> <laughs> so was he like uh i mean i guess people knew people knew three penny opera and he was a name i guess and they, I think he had. They to, were like, I "Come, he, come, work for it with us." <laughs> I think he had. To, I think he had to hustle a, a, quite a bit, actually. Mm-hmm. He, 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 uh, he. There's a fa- there's a lot of famous stories about his first couple of weeks here uh, in the U.S. He went to see a, 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 a dress rehearsal of Porgy and Bess, mm-hmm. and was both blown away and sort of jealous and felt like I could write that. And also kind of like, I could write that. That's not that good. Like, mm-hmm. I think he was, he was amazed that that could be done, but I think he had a lot of issues. Like I would do it differently. Mm-hmm. And that's what he, he basically, when he finally wrote Lost in the Stars years later, that was his attempt to get in that direction. And, you know, I don't think he came close, but uh, yeah, he was, he was known, but he really had to just go hat in hand. And so he, those two productions I mentioned were sort of like, those are his first stabs at, at, uh, at, at writing music here. Um, I think he was writing letters. He was writing letters. I think Breck might have been in Santa Monica at some point. I don't know if he was still in Germany. They were trying to get. I think they were trying to get the rights to do some of the, some of his German stuff here. Get it translated. I think there was. It was a very. I mean, for a lot of reasons, his life was up in upheaval in his country. He loved and right. what was going on there was really, you know, stressing him out. But being here was also very stressful. So it wasn't until he hooked up with Maxwell Anderson, who was. For his time, this very major playwright, there's very few of his plays that anybody gives the time of day. I think Petrified Forest hmm. is the only one people know because it was turned into a movie. His stuff is very earnest. It has a certain high level of craft, but it's very earnest, sort of liberal, you know, uh, Protestant. It's interesting. He's liberal Protestant guy who also hated Roosevelt. So Knickerbocker Holiday is his sort of parody of uh, Peter Stuyvesant, the first governor of New York. And he's sort of a Roosevelt character who is sort of a rogue and you know it's weird I, I don't i don't quite understand maxwell anderson policy he was sort of left but he was sort of libertarian and didn't and thought roosevelt was a fascist so anyway <laughs> wow. um knickerbocker holiday has the famous september song mm-hmm. in it which is one of kurt Vaughn's first american standards oh it's a long long while from made The days grow short when you reach September, when the autumn weather turns the leaves to flame. One hasn't got time for the waiting game. And it's it's got some great stuff in it. It's it very much feels like, and it was for Broadway, and it very feels very much feels like he's finding his feet as a popular American composer because he knew how to sort of do that in Germany. It's a totally different market here. He also famously insisted on orchestrating his own work, which is not mm-hmm. something that 
people did over here. Um, I don't think even Bernstein, I mean, he, I don't think he, or, or, I think he had orchestrators. It's just when you're on Broadway, there's a division of labor, but Kurt Vile was like, I, I need to, I'm going to tell people what to play. I'm, I'm going to write it all, <laughs> write right, every note. Right. So, well, if you have that classical background, I can imagine. Yeah, I think yeah. that's what it was. I think I, I have, I think I read somewhere that eventually the sheer workload, he did have some like copyists and he did get some help, but mm. he was very much his own, his own, uh, his own man, especially when he got to the writing operas later, I think we'll get to. I mean, I, this period is not a period I know as well, except for some great songs that stand out from it. You know, Lady in the Dark was, for its time, a very bold musical about psychoanalysis. Ooh, so, so right, exciting. Right. And it was, <laughs> it, was seen, it was seen as sort of feminist for its time, but if you watch it, it's not really. It, it is about a, a, a woman uh, who's an editor of a magazine, and it's about how, how can you possibly be a, a woman and, and, and be in charge of something and, and not have trauma. You know, it's, I, I, I'm being, a, I'm being a little bit dismissive. It's uh there was a, there was a wonderful, I think it was collegiate course did it with, with Victoria Clark some years ago. Oh yeah. I didn't see that, but I remember that. <clears throat> and it, it has some, it has, it has, it has a song, um, the song of Jenny, which is actually just not my favorite song. It's sort of a bluesy mm-hmm. sort of jokey song. It's got some good songs in it. The one I like best, though, is the, is the Patter song Tchaikovsky, which they wrote for Danny Kaye, mm. which is just complete nonsense. It has nothing to do with the show. It's just a list of composers' names. It's Ira Gershwin going crazy and just <laughs> listing every composer's name that he can't think of in Russian. Um, but it was very influential at the time, I guess, and it was considered daring. It was 1941. Um, one Touch of Venus has got a great score, and there's an encore recording I've heard that has Melissa Errico from many years ago. Mm-hmm. It's just very sweet. It's very much, it's, it's hitting a lot of some of the tones that he did with Johnny Johnson, like Americana, like barbershop quartet music, like Meredith Wilson material. It's really, it's, some of it's really lovely. Um, and that's with Ogden Nash and S.J. Perelman. And that's that's basically, the, if you know the movie Mannequin, it's basically that plot, like a mannequin comes to life, who's actually the god, the goddess Venus. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's very silly. Um but uh, and I think Ilya Kazan directed it, and that's another one I've I think I've read. Ilya Kazan mm-hmm. didn't know what to do with it. He's like, I don't. I'm supposed to take this seriously. Is this, I, right. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, you know, Love Life is the famous Alan J. Lerner one, where the premise almost defies character. Do you know? Have you heard the premise of this? Oh, Get like a marriage, a marriage over like a, a very long span of time. <laughs> Well, it's never quite explained. It's not sci-fi, but it's basically looking at a marriage of two people, but throughout Amer- different decades of American history. Mm-hmm. So the, the decades and the styles and the mores change around them. And that's sort of the point. The mores of how people sleep with each other in court and get married and divorced change a little bit. But this man-woman thing just keeps staying the same. Like that's kind of Alan J. Lerner's rather sexist point. Like mm-hmm. I think I'm being also very dismissive, but again, this – this has almost no songs I could cite to you. It has some good songs. The one I like best is uh, uh, Spring Up Time, I think it's called. Yeah, it, only because there's this great recording of it that Lada Lenya did many years later. Mm-hmm. And it's it's so kitschy, and, but, but really lovely. Um, oh, gr- no, sorry, Green Up Time. Green Up mm-hmm. Time. It's Green Up Time. I, it, it's very 
1950s mm. sound, even since 1948. Um, and just to hear her sing that with this heavy German accent, it's just, I love it. Yesterday morning I did see blossoms on the apple tree. I took a breath and thought, could it be? It's green up time. Then I began to look around, and in every field I found, greens were a pushing through the ground for green up time. And sure enough, the bluebells tinkled, April in the glen. Sure enough, my fell in love with love again. Then, and there's some okay things in there, but that's the that was his period. I think those four shows, Knickerbocker, Lady in the Dark, One Touch of Venus, and Love Life. That's kind of his Broadway period where he was writing Broadway musicals, and I, you know, none of them quite sealed the deal. Yeah. As like they, some of them did well. I think Lady in the Dark did quite well at the box office because it was a hot ticket. Right. The others really didn't, and they didn't really respond a lot of hits and standards. Again, I think he was earnestly trying to make it work. And, uh, you know, One Touch of Venus, I don't, I just don't know the book that well. Again, the score is maybe my favorite of those. It's just, it's, a, it's kind of like one sweet song after another. It's just really a sweet sounding musical. But, you know, then he closed out his career really with just setting sights a little higher not that Broadway's not high, but he decided to, he was street scene lost in the stars are sort of his attempts to write the big American opera, mm-hmm. you know, street scene actually is even more than lost in the stars is his Porgy and Bess. So he takes the Elmer Rice play about just sort of a slice of life on this very diverse street or block with people living on top of each other in a tenement and just the drama that happens between them, a murder, some, some infidelity, you know, babies born, people dying, kids playing in the street. Um, and that has some amazing stuff. Um, yeah. I've never heard a recording of it that I really love, but there was a staging of it. I, we were trying to figure out where it was done somewhere in Manhattan about maybe 10 years ago or more. And it's really strong. It, it, it does work on you the way those great musicals do, where you just have to sit with it. You can't just get it. It's a full on opera and it does have um, a lot of great songs. Somehow I Never Could Believe, which is one of the great arias like written for the theater. Really a little like Moment to the Woods. Uh, it's mm-hmm. like the, a wife considering, is this all that there is to life? And somehow I, I used to not believe that's possible. But maybe that's all this. It's really, it's beautiful. But Lonely House is the is the, is yeah. the song from that, that, that has been covered and is just, it's one of the only times I can think of where Kurt Beil does sort of scene painting with the music. He's not known for like, making music that sounds like, like, you know, this violin sounds like creaky stairs and it's, it really mm-hmm. sounds like yeah. a creaky house. Like you're in a house. I mean, he does a lot of strengths, but one of them was not like scene painting. Like, Oh, it really sounds like I'm on a train or sounds like I'm on a, uh, you know, it sounds like I'm out on the Savannah or something. He's, right. he, he, uh, he could evoke that a little bit, but he was much more about the, the, the dramatic, you know, um, impulse of the scene, but uh, that's beautiful. At night when everything is quiet This old house seems to breathe a sigh 
Sometimes I hear a neighbor snoring. Sometimes I hear a baby cry. Sometimes I hear a staircase creaking. Sometimes a distant telephone. And the final one was Lost in Stars. He went back to Maxwell Anderson. And that's another one with a very problematic book where it's based on uh, Alan Payton's Cry of the Beloved Country, which I, I have never read. And you know, it, it's one of these stories, very earnest liberal stories about South African apartheid and racism told very much from the white point of view. And a little bit, I wouldn't say there's a white savior narrative, but it's it's... It's one of those where you're going, why are we spending so much time with the white characters? <laughs> why, yeah. I read why? it in I read it in high school and it's yeah. a typical uh probably book to read in high school for uh yeah. world literature. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But that I mean that score is on another level. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's his best score, but it really is a breakthrough into something complete. He was writing for black voices. He had not written specifically for black voices except for a few in street scene. And he was writing, you know, pseudo-African music. I mean, you know, it was not really, but uh, intentionally, uh, the song Lost in the Stars was left over from a, a piece Maxwell Anderson wanted to do where he had did, was called Ulysses Africanus, where he was going to do a slave story, uh, a, a story about a, a, an enslaved man who was like uh, uh, Ulysses. Mm. Had a super problematic elements in it, which you can all read about. But Lost in the Stars is plucked from that. And Todd Duncan, who played the original Porgy, was the lead in... Um, Pumalo in Lost in the Stars. And I mean, Kurt Vile just, he rose to a level of, of writing in there, which is, again, there's some stuff that he just, you know, he, it was some of the best stuff he, he did. And it was very, it was just pointed in a whole new direction. Um, uh, you know, he, he tried to write with some open scales that, that, you know, again, it could get in problematic areas where you talk about, Oh, he's writing something, it's supposed to sound African, but I don't know if you listen to any African music. Um, it sounds maybe sort of Eastern, but the opening song about the road to the hills of Ikapo is just, it's just a, it's a gorgeous piece that again, it's, it's, it's close to operatic, but it's in a, it's in a sort of a black operatic sound that, that again, is like Porgy. There is a lovely road that runs from Ikapo. are grass covered and rolling and they are lovely beyond any singing of it 
about you that is grass and bracken, and you may hear the full-on crying of the Titioya bird. The grass of the felt is rich and matted, you cannot see the soil. The grass holds rain and mist, they seep into the ground, feeding the streams in every And then he was working on a, a musical based on, I think it was based on Huck Finn. Mm-hmm. There's a few songs left over from it, and then he died in 1950. So, you know, his posthumous career had a lot to do with his his widow, um, Latalenia, who lived for many more years and uh, sort of became the guardian and the, and the performer of his work. She was in Three Penny Opera on Broadway, or Off-Broadway, sorry, but she did win a Tony. She won a Tony for... for <laughs> the only performer to win a Tony for an off-Broadway performance. They just thought she was so great. They gave it to her, um, which is amazing. But she also then recorded a bunch of his music and recorded, went back to Germany to record the definitive three penny opera in German recording that I, who's the one was my conversion text in 1956 or 58. And um, you know, the rest is history. He was embraced a little bit later by, by sixties countercultural types who, you know, saw a kindred spirit especially in Brecht's, Brecht's lyrics, but also in his music. Um, but, you know, and then the classical world has, has to varying degrees woken up to his music as well. There's a lot of, he has a lot of partisans in the Kent Nagano the conductor, uh, James Conlon, who did the one conducted the Mahagoni at Lely Opera. What, uh, so what do you think is his best score? Oh gosh. Well, <laughs> if it's not I, lost in the stars, <laughs> yeah, no, it's 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 not quite lost in the stars. I mean, I'm gonna say it's one of those that I mentioned in the middle there. I would say, if I just had pure note for note, fe- like gorgeousness and feeling that I mm-hmm. feel, I would put Der Silberzee and Johnny Johnson really high up there. Mm. I would say, you know, his masterpiece as a piece of drama is the the opera the rise and fall of the city mahagoni that end to end is just a piece of just packs a punch as a dramatic work Mm. and i would not kick three penny opera out of bed that's that's a wonderful score i mean that's and that's a good gateway that's like there's no you know but it i I think there's a tendency especially with the american version to see it a little bit as little cartoony and a little uh you know when those brecht lyrics are put into english it just seems like it's all just sort of a send-up and a parody and there's you know, if you hear any real feeling in there, that's also key to to Kurtball. He really meant it. He, I mean, really, you know, the irony is all there, but he really, the key is the ambivalence. He really felt things yeah, and put that in the music. And he also felt the opposite. He also felt like this is all bullshit, but love is, you know, love is great and love is terrible. And like, it was all, it was all in the, it's all in the music. So, um, I mean, I wouldn't say Der Zilberzee is is your best gateway drug, but it's, uh, I would say Zilberzee and Lost in the Stars are the two that made me just wish he'd, like one is right before he leaves Germany. Like it has to basically end that part of his career. I wish would love to see how he could have blossomed as a popular, you know, theater composer there outside of the realm of Brecht. And then Lost in the Stars is just like, he could have written 
he could have written the great American, like a West Side Story kind of mm-hmm. level work um, that just where everything comes together and just like was next level like that, you know, but he was, he, you know, he did enough in those, in those works and there's enough great music to hold on to that, you know, and the thing about theater music is I can just, I can listen to it just as music, but it conveys something. Even if, even if the whole book doesn't work, it has the, the, it was written for a purpose and the whole purpose that he, you know, that he wanted to write his music for, I can still feel that even if I don't understand the language, I can still feel that intention. I mean, you know what I mean? Dramatic music has a dramatic intention, you know? Right. Um, and that's kind of built into the music. So even if you're listening to like an instrumental version in the background, it really feels like all that drama is in there somehow. So I definitely feel that with, with all of his work, especially his best work. I do feel like folks like, like, like Dave Malloy or um, Heather Christian or folks like that are, are going to take, you know, whether they love his music or not, I feel like even if he's not revered by everybody forever the way I do, he wasn't concerned with posterity. He often said he was writing music for now. Yeah. You know, he wasn't sentimental about that. And I do feel like the impulses behind his music are still alive in uh, a lot of people that I see on the scene. So I'm, I'm heartened mm-hmm. that uh, whether it's conscious or not, his influence is still with us. <laughs> yeah. Well, great. Let's move on to our next section. Why is this so good? Oh, yeah. And we're going to talk about the song In Dahomey from Showboat. <laughs> but this is probably not a song that people who know Showboat maybe know because it's not mm-hmm. usually in uh, subsequent uh, productions of Showboat. Um, I certainly never saw it or never heard it in Showboat. So. Yeah, why did you pick this song for Why Is This So Good? So, yeah, this was not a show you will ever or should ever really see in a production of Showboat going forward. I mean, Showboat is often revised and, uh, you know, for its time it was progressive, a progressive view of miscegenation, but it's got so much racist stuff in it. Uh, it, The original lyrics and, you know, there's there's stuff that needs to be cleaned up. This particular... (laughs) This particular song, um, it, it, I mean, it's literally depicting, uh, you know, uh, quasi like pseudo African savages at a like World's Fair kind of display, like they're like they're on display, hmm. like a like a live diorama, and that's how the song starts, uh, and it's got this fake savage music. It's it's very racist if you know the, the meaning of it. <laughs> twist is that the the white people who are watching this uh i i can't imagine this is just like this these aren't this isn't part of the main story this is just like part of the showboat world um 
I think maybe some of the characters in in the diorama are later revealed to be part of the you know the black cast of the show, like some of the lead characters. Mm-hmm. But in any case, the white characters have this 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 kind of hilariously you know frightened. Oh dear, they're going to get us. We don't want to be speared by these, and they run away. And then this joyous, raucous showboat banjo music comes out, in which the black actors take off all their ridiculous racist costumes put on their regular street clothes and just sing about how they want to just go have, you know, go have pork chops and, and have their great life on DeCrawl Avenue. Mm-hmm. And, and they're just, then they're laughing at the white, at, 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 at the, this, this terrible thing they have to do and at the white people that, um, at, at their fears. And this is all expressed in the music in such a way that I can't help but smile because the, the, all three parts of it, the, the sort of fake savage music again, I'm not laughing at it or I'm not laughing with it. I mean, you know, it's like, actually the, the, the story I tell is that I was, it was on the radio in LA and it was like, I could, it was between channels between reception. And I thought the two stations were happening. It sounded like Prokofiev or some like Russian dun, 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 bum, 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 like this fake primitive thing. And then I heard this like, banjo music and i'm like what is this these don't go together i thought that i thought it was like i was going between stations <laughs> and it was actually one piece mm-hmm. so that still makes me smile at that because so there's this there's this there's this you know fake faux primitive music which of course is sending up the ideas of, of africanness which are completely racist mm-hmm. and then there's this this like melodramatic like uh you know uh screechy white music where they're like, oh, let us you know, and they're running away. Um, and then there's this just like raging, like raging fun ragtime music when when the folks are 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 getting back to their normal lives and and making fun of the white people. Again, this would be too much to put on stage. It's not, it's like, it reminds me, I was thinking as I was describing, it's a little bit like top, the concept of top, top underdog, like a guy mm. uh, in a fair uh, black man is Abraham Lincoln getting shot every, all the time. Like that works in Laurie <laughs> Park's play. I don't think that we need to see this stage, but I wanted to say what, one of the things that makes it so great and what, so this is, you can get this as a, there was a, there was a recording of the complete showboat score that was in the early 2000s or the 90s, I think, by John Mouchery and the Hollywood Orchestra and Frederica von Stad sings Julie. And it's got so much rich music. And, you know, this is also in the, the, the How Prince Revival. You know, we think of Jerome Kern, I think of Jerome Kern as, as this guy who writes these wonderful jewel-like songs, perfect songs, Till the Clouds Roll By and, you know, Smoke Gets In Your Eyes and Mm-hmm. Uh, what's it? Uh, the way you look tonight. Just these perfect jewel-like dancing songs, and they're just they're perfectly crafted. That score from the was it 1926, I think, or eight. Uh, the showboat Seven, came out. Yeah. 27. 
that is like, you know, it's, it's not grand opera. It's, it's, it's in that vein of like the American opera that Porgy and Bess would be. He's writing in registers that like just tapping this Americana, like, you know, Southern music, black music of minstrel stuff, you know, for better or worse, like it, 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 I don't know. I, I feel like that score as much as people talk about it, I still think it's underrated just as a, as a piece of just channeling American music in a, in a way, again, that I think Kern never really had a chance to do before or after. I don't know every note of his, of his oeuvre, but I just, I love his, his beautiful art song. They're like art songs, the stuff yeah. he wrote for his shows. But this is like a score where he's like batting with, you know, again, the Bernsteins and the, the you know, uh, the vials uh, for, for like, just this full orchestral sound. And I think into homie is the most sort of witty, just like virtuosic display of, of his, like, again, this is not a song that will ever be a standard. It's, (laughs) (laughs) it has a great tune, but it's not like you're going to hear this at Cafe Carlisle, but it's just, I highly recommend that that recording. It's just, it's a, it's a very infectious. And, you know, again, I, I think your mileage will vary about whether you think it's, it's, it's really witty to make fun of racism by, by recreating racist tropes, right. With, with the mm-hmm. savage music. But I mean, it's uh, I, I think it all comes out well in the end. It's just, it's, it's a, it's a, it's an amazing, an amazing piece of piece of work. And I, I wish more people knew about it. I can understand why more people talk. <laughs> There's very good reasons why it's not in wide circulation, but it's just, it's a, it's a, it's a small work of genius. What, so. so where, where in the show did it, did it come in the, in the overall story? Oh, that's a great question that I, I don't even know. I've, it's been a while since I've sat down with I mean, I that. guess the, the original, I, I've heard that it's very, it's, it's pretty different from the how Prince revival that I saw I in think the nineties. So it, it, it might come in some place in the plot where, or in the story where we are, which I'm not even familiar with, but <laughs> Well, so I'm looking at the, I'm looking at Wikipedia. It's, it's, it's at the, it's near the top of act two. It's not at the top of act two. It's, I think the original was super long based, mm-hmm. based, on, the, based on the number of songs I'm seeing here. Yeah. It is a, a long set. It's right before Bill, interestingly, hmm. but uh, it does seem like, so it's between why do I love you and Bill. So it seems like it's a, it might be a kind of thing like to get the, uh, the lead actors a, ch- a breath or a chance to change. They have yeah. the, the chorus number, the chorus number. Uh, it's it's credited to the Jubilee Singers and Dahomey Dancers, which I think th- that's your white and your black company right there. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's uh, I and I, I don't remember the movie. If I, I, again, this is it's obviously it's a kind of it's the kind of song even despite the racist content that would be cut anyway because it's just kind of like a frothy yeah side thing. It's not it's not the main point of it. But um, I mean, again, as a little like capsule recording of like. Uh, a moment of racial like misunderstanding and tension that sort of, you know, laughing at black racism or sorry, laughing at white, white race, <laughs> white anti-black racism. It's, it's uh, I, I find it just a delight. Let's uh, move to our final section. Something wonderful, just something upcoming or current in musical theater that we are excited about and want to give a shout out to. So, you know, I've, I've been hearing about this production of Tommy that's at uh, Who the Who's Tommy and the Good Men that might come to Broadway. I was surprised that I liked that show as much as I did. I might, I might put that up there with the, 
musicals that uh, people are surprised I like. Uh, I just thought it worked really well on the stage. Um, I've heard that Dave Molloy's Octet is circling the runaway again, maybe for Broadway. Oh. I don't know. I, I, you heard it here first. I, who knows? It, I think it's. I think it's. I think it's being prepared for London. So, hmm. anytime someone puts on a show in London, you're thinking, "Oh, are they trying to come back to the anyway?" Um, and that's a really interesting show. Obviously, yeah. I mean, the big one that everyone's looking forward to, and also I'm excited and scared, is uh, sometimes here we are. You know, yeah. the Boonwell inspired piece with David Ives, which, as far as I know, was not complete when he died. Mm-hmm. Um, so is this a sign of Sidney Brewstein's window where he's barely had it finished and they were right. still going to see it anyway, you know? Um, is anything ever complete? <laughs> no, that's true. Yeah. That's true. I, I, you know, Roadshow, I mean, I don't know what you think of that. I think that that sort of taught us not, not to expect too much from mm-hmm. his later work. I am really intrigued by the, the, the inspiration for this being Boone Well. I feel like it has a chance to be, if, if, if it's not great, at least be interesting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, so, I mean, I know very little about it, so but I also don't know if I'll be able to see it because I feel like it's gonna completely be inaccessible. To- <laughs> that's right. That's probably that's that's unfortunately probably true. And I, I, I mean, the only other thing I wanted to mention was this is in the category like with Adam Gattel of a composer who I've heard I should get into, and I I missed Heather Christian's oratorio. I don't know if you saw uh, that. I did see that. Yeah. She's got another piece coming up. Uh, I think at this fall at Hero Arts, and it was just announced called Terce, a practical mm. breviary, which is some version of a like a monastic mass through mm. the lens of the divine feminine. I mean, you know, I got religious religious sympathies and interests, so like I'm interested to see, I'm just interested in that on a lot of a lot of levels. Uh, yeah. Uh, and I, you know, it's, I have no excuse again, other than just my time and, you know, uh, priorities that I have not experienced her music yet, except a little bit on record. Mm-hmm. Um, it does seem like the kind of stuff you need to see and really feel in person. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I'm looking forward to that. I'm excited. You know, there's plenty, I spend a lot of time listening to music that's not musical theater, but I, when I look, turn my attention to musical theater, I'm never disappointed with how much, how much stuff's happening. That's interesting. So. I'm actually excited. I just saw the music, the musicals at Mufti, the York Theater was, oh, a, yeah. they're announced for, I think they'll probably be starting by the time this, or have already started by the time this is released, but I was excited to see two out of the three. I, I really uh, never thought I'd, I'd see staged. I don't know what the third one is. It's possible it falls into that category for some people too, but uh, how to steal an election which I had only heard about because uh, the the writer Bill Brown is the book writer for The Wiz, and oh, it's just okay. like no, it's just another thing he did. Um, so there, I, I don't even know that. I don't even know that show. I've heard of it, but I didn't. Yeah, know yeah. That. So yeah. they're they're doing that, and then the Lieutenant, which I've been super fascinated uh, by, uh, just as a vietnam war show uh that's like kind of experimental and uh never thought i'd have an opportunity here there's a recording those two and 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 the third i've i don't even remember the title i'd never heard of it but i'm just looking at it it's called golden rainbow yes so i i have not i have heard of this musicals of mufti this sounds like a sort of more intimate Niche, yeah, it's uh, just encores, uh, right? Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. just wow. uh, you know, it's it's. I think it's more. I haven't been to it in years, but if it's like okay. what I saw previously, it's it's more of like a 
a reading. Uh, right, right. It's not it's not staged, but still, to be able to hear certain shows like that's that's fine. Thank you all for listening to this episode of Scene to Song. You can write to scene to song at gmail.com with a comment or question about an episode or about musical theater, or if you'd like to be a podcast guest. Love this podcast? Help it find more listeners by rating it on Apple Podcasts and leaving a review. Follow on Instagram at scene to song, on Twitter at scene song, and on Facebook at scene to song with Shoshana Greenberg podcast. Sign up for our monthly e-newsletter at scenetosong.substack.com and contribute to our Patreon. The theme music you are hearing is by Julia Meinwald. Check back here in two weeks for our next episode.